A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Deborah Bloom. The story was recorded in September 2013 at the Middle East in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme of the evening was Poisons and Passions. So my story does take you back into time, and I want and I kind of want to start it like this. It's really easy when you're a kid to think of your father as the crazy guy who keeps bringing snakes and spiders into the house. At least that was interesting for the way my childhood was. I grew up on a small dead-end street in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, kind of in the swampy edges of the Mississippi River Plain. In fact, we had a small swamp across the street, and we would go over there as kids crayfish catching, and occasionally we'd have to run away from the poisonous snakes in the swamp. Anyone here ever seen a water moccasin? Yeah. So if you know the water moccasin, its nickname is the cottonmouth because it'll, when it opens its mouth in warning, it flashes white. And we learned very early as neighborhood kids that when we saw that white flash to splash like hell in the opposite direction. My father, who was an entomologist at Louisiana State University, would take us there to collect tadpoles. And we'd put them on the dining room table in these cloudy jars of water and watch them turn into frogs. And that's one of my best memories of childhood, the way my father would bring the natural world into the house. And it wasn't just tadpoles. One year, we had a container of ribbon and garter snakes on the dining room table, which stayed until we all realized that our cat was thinking of them as dinner. So, and another time, it was a black widow spider, Really beautiful, right? Elegant and sleek, black and red, pacing this plexiglass container in the middle of the table. When I rented my first apartment as a college student, my father gave me a tarantula as a housewarming gift. (laughs) And this nut, who was also known as Professor Murray Blum, was an expert in the chemicals that many-legged creatures use to defend themselves. He wrote a book about that. He spent years studying everything from honeybees to fire ants. When my sister Darcy stepped into a fire ant nest, he first rushed her to a pharmacy and then used that opportunity to figure out why none of her stings got infected. And it turns out that fire ant venom contains a natural antiseptic which he found so interesting that he was almost glad that she'd stepped in that nest and gotten over 100 stings, except, you know, almost. And he hung out and worked with a lot of other ant-loving scientists, some of whom are very well-known, and the one who is probably most famous, well, let's say world-famous today, is E.O. Wilson from Harvard. And Wilson is probably best known today for his pioneering work in sociobiology, but my dad really loved his work with ants. Wilson is originally from Alabama, 
So when he was down south chasing ant trails, he'd come to sometimes swing over to Baton Rouge for a home-cooked meal, which meant nothing to me and my sisters. He was just another one of my dad's bug-crazy friends. So you're probably asking yourself, where is she going with this? But if you grow up in the South, you know that a good story needs to meander and wind its way to the point. And I can meander a lot more than this. <laughs> but I'm going to today take you fairly directly to a late summer afternoon in 1964, which finds my sister and myself playing in the backyard, a tangle of honeysuckle, a bar across the back fence. And we really grew up with this, climbing the trees, hiding in the bushes, sipping the sweetness out of the honeysuckle. But until this afternoon, we had never paid any attention to this kind of stubby little tree in a back corner of the yard behind the garage where my mother hung out the laundry. And on this day, my parents were planning a fancy dinner for Ed Wilson and some other esteemed entomologist. My mother had bought fresh shrimp for her famous gumbo. And my sister Darcy, our friend Thea from next door, and I were out in the backyard imagining a fancy dinner, the spicy gumbo, the berry shortcake, the little dishes of olives and nuts. We understood that almonds were the ultimate nut. And around us in the grass, as we planned our dinner, were these round, ball, kind of nut-looking things that had dropped from the branches of the tree above them, us. I was eight, and my sister was six, and we studied them, and I say, you know, I think these are almonds. So we got some bricks, and we started cracking them open. And you really had to smash to get to these kind of pale, peanut-looking-like seeds inside, which is probably one of the reasons my parents had never worried about this tree. But this time, we did excavate the seeds, took them out, and started crunching. So I need to kind of tell you now that crunch is probably the wrong word. <laughs> As I remember these, they were kind of spongy, kind of oily, they weren't bitter, and they weren't really sweet, but they had this kind of sickly, greenish wood taste. So we took a nibble, and we thought, gee, adults like really awful-tasting things. <laughs> and if you're a kid, you already know this, right? Your parents have given you a sip of their martini or something, and you thought, man, they hate, they really eat awful stuff or drink awful stuff. So we took another nibble, maybe another kind of look, and then we were just like, no, it's an acquired adult taste. So about this time, it's getting dark. We all go home for dinner. And you know, by the time I get in the door, I'm just not feeling that well. In fact, I'm not feeling well at all. And I go into the kitchen. My mother's there rinsing the shrimp for the gumbo. The entomologists are in the living room having their pre-dinner drinks. I sidle up to my mother. I open my mouth. And I am sick in the most, let's, the most green and oily possible way. All over my mother, all over the shrimp, the floor, the shrimp. My sister Darcy is being equally sick in the living room, and, and there's an alarm phone call from next door that tells us that Thea is just as sick next door. 
So the green and oily pools keep spreading. And this is a house full of biologists, right? So they diagnose a toxic exposure. (laughs) What did you eat, my father says. And his voice is panicked and loud and sort of urgent. And we go, nothing, Dad. (laughs) which is exactly what you do when you're a kid and your parents sound kind of scary, right? Nothing. And my mother's on the phone with the doctor. What did they eat? Nothing. We just keep denying it. So I don't have a perfect memory of all the events that follow, but I asked my father not too long ago, and it seems to have been kind of scarred into his memory (laughs) in a kind of bitter way. Um, So it turns out they knew we were playing in the backyard. He and Dr. Wilson from Harvard get a flashlight, and they go out and search. And behind the garage, they find the bricks and the cracked seed pods and the evidence. And I didn't really think about this evidence until I became a writer who spends a lot of time writing about poisonous things. But when I did, that summer day just floated back into my head, So I called home and I asked my parents if they knew what we had actually been eating that night. And they did. They remembered it perfectly in that same kind of cranky way. So my father told me that what we had been eating were nuts from a tree which is called the tongue nut tree. And these trees are native to China. Their Latin name is Alorides fortii. They were brought over in the early 20th century to Gulf states to create tree plantations. The plantations were mostly wiped out during a 1940s hurricane, but there's scattered remnants of them around the south, including apparently the one in our backyard. So why were they plantation-worthy trees? Well, when I looked this up, it turns out that tongue oil is a very commercially useful ingredient in things like varnish, paint, and furniture oil. And the first website I looked at says, tongue trees are poisonous in all their parts. (laughs) And the next one says, there's no part more dangerous than the seed. (laughs) A seed, a single seed can kill a human being. So I'm like, why are they so poisonous? So I go further. I look up the chemical formula. You probably know that cyanide is a naturally occurring poison and that a lot of plants make it as a defense against predators. And when I looked up the chemical formula for tongue oil, I find that it's rich in something that we call isocyanides, which is actually turns out to be kind of a recurring theme in its chemistry. So to take you back to this evening one more time, as I said, I don't remember that much, a kind of wash of sweet tea and hovering near the bathroom. Uh, The assembled guests, after they cleaned up, decided, you know, they really weren't that hungry. Um, It was, it turns out, an all-martini dinner. (laughs) As I've said to my father, there was no need to be cranky because it was a big success. It had drama and it had drink. So, and in fact, my father is still a good friend of Ed Wilson. And and in the late 1990s, I wrote a book about gender biology. He called him up and asked him if if Wilson would blurb the book. 
and he sent such a nice quote that my editor called me up to celebrate. I said to my dad, does he remember the dinner? (laughs) He said, no, he didn't remember that well. What he did remember was that at the age of eight, I could identify ants by their Latin names, which tells you another thing about my childhood, and probably another thing about Ed Wilson. So there's an old saying in toxicology, the dose makes the poison, which is another way of saying we were really lucky. And I came to appreciate that only recently when I started telling stories of people who didn't survive poisoning episodes. And I won't stand here and tell you today that that pretend dinner party in the backyard led me directly to the kind of work I do today. But I will tell you that it taught me very early that natural is not a synonym for safe or healthy. (laughs) And it taught me to think of our environment as one of the best backgrounds for gothic storytelling. (laughs) Because in the world that I write about today, trees are always out to get you. (laughs) Thank you. That was Deborah Bloom. Deborah is a Pulitzer Prize-winning science journalist, author, and blogger, and is the Helen Firstbrook Franklin Professor of Journalism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of five books and a popular guide to science writing. Her most recent publication, The Poisoner's Handbook, was a 2011 New York Times bestseller and will be the subject of an American Experience documentary on PBS in January. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Middle East for hosting the show, to Ben Weehy for tremendous help, and to the trees where I grew up in Oregon, which just taste bad. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.